Freedom doesn't need more cheerleaders shouting partisan slogans. It needs thoughtful, principled disciples of liberty. Deep down, we all know that freedom and liberty matter. This is where we discuss why they matter. It's time to elevate the discussion. Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to Loving Liberty. Thank you so much. If you are catching the live broadcast, well, thanks for joining in. 801-331-8113. If you're catching the podcast, so glad you could be a part of, of our efforts to, to speak the truth, to, to speak the principles and the practices of liberty and private property rights and land use issues and freedom of conscience. And I'm sure there's a few that I'm missing here, too, but... Uh, This is just one of those interesting times in history where somebody needs to speak up. And I'm grateful there are so many great voices that help in getting this message out. Let me just give you a quick little rundown of what I'm talking about. If you are familiar with Beth Ann Schoenberg, Beth Ann broadcasting on the CSC network is uh, talking common sense and just good, solid, principled analysis of the day's events in an effort to bring America home to the values and the traditions that have made us such a blessed nation. C.L. Bryant preaches the gospel of freedom every weekday from 10 a.m. to noon Mountain Time here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. My friend Joe Carey, one of a kind, uh, great, great man involved in so many different different ventures and different uh, efforts to just celebrate what's good, what's right, What's uplifting? You can catch his show at noon, Mountain Time, every weekday here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. And then we have this wonderful lineup of, of commentators like Eric Mutsos with the American Mutsos Show on Mondays at 1 p.m. Also, uh, Lawrence W. Reed, President Emeritus of the Foundation of Economic for Economic Education, or Fee.org. The Reed Hour comes your way every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Mountain Time. Uh, yours truly. Have a little uh, midweek thing I do at 1 o'clock. Then it's uh, Thursdays. Today being Thursday, Ammon Bundy will be checking with the Liberty Effect. What a powerful voice for freedom that man is. And uh, and rightly so. Agree with him or disagree with him. Um, guys who have, have seriously suffered for what they believe, they, they kind of get, uh, get respect. Even from the people who disagree with them, you have to respect somebody who's got some skin in the game. Last but not least... One o'clock Friday afternoons, my friend Ralph DeLugas is the host of Truth is Stranger Than Fiction. And I love his approach to some of the more interesting, non-political things that are going on around us that nonetheless have real impact and open up some very real possibilities. Um, it's, It's what Art Bell could have been had he lived to be 150 years old. That's how good Ralph is. And that's that's the highest compliment I can possibly pay him. Also, uh, my friend Kate Daly, you'll hear her from two until five weekday afternoons on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. And last but not least, this is uh, this is one of the best shows going out there. Liberty Roundtable with Sam Bushman and Kurt Crosby. I tell you, I am just amazed at everything that Sam is able to do in the course of a day's work. And he runs one of the finest shows more interviews, more topics, better analysis, principled analysis, and just more passion for liberty than almost anybody I can think of. 
You can catch him. We we air. Unfortunately, here's a, here's a little quirk, a little inside information, if you will. Sam and I are on the air at the same time every weekday morning from seven to nine a.m. Mountain Time, but uh, we are graciously given permission to run his show between five and seven p.m. and again five and seven a.m. each weekday. And it is uh, so worthwhile. He had a magnificent interview with uh, Alex from Ammo.com about Ruby Ridge. This was on yesterday's show. You can you can pull it up. Hour two. I believe it was hour two. I'll have to double check. Maybe it was hour one. Uh, but to go to anchor.fm, put in Loving Liberty Radio Network, and you can find everything you need to make it happen. All right. I think I've given all the uh, accolades here. Just know you've got a lot of options. You have a lot of things to choose from. And I hope this is the stuff that brings some kind of ennobling and uplifting information right to where you need it. So I want to start with a little thing about Gillette. Do you remember Gillette Razors doing their ad about toxic masculinity? This is just a few months back, and then they, they actually did uh, kind of a, another uh, woke sort of ad about, uh, hey, look, why for this transgender teenager shaving for the very first time, Gillette is there. And there was talk about, well, maybe we ought to boycott them, you know, people who disagreed with, with their social justice approach. Well, apparently, that set them back about $8 billion dollars. No, that's billion with a B. And now Gillette is saying, hey, we're going to shift the spotlight from social issues to local heroes. So I'm not saying that boycotts are always the way to go, but wow. Did you ever think that uh, Gillette would take an $8 billion hit for deciding to, to be so openly woke? Apparently their new ad, which, uh, you know, focuses on local heroes launched last week. It stars an Australian firefighter and personal trainer named Ben Ziekenheiner. He says, I've been a firefighter for 19 years. People ask if it's scary. It can be, but like anyone who has a job to do, you prepare not just in terms of your equipment, but also mentally and physically. And the ad apparently spruiks the brand's skin guard range, highlighting the issue of sensitive skin for men who shave every day, including firefighters who are required to be clean-shaven as that enables a proper seal for their breathing mask. Now, I'm seeing actually... Uh, okay, that's why. This is, this is an article out of Australia. Parent company Procter & Gamble last month took a nearly $12 billion write-down in the value of the 118-year-old shaving business. That's in Australian dollars. It's about $8 billion U.S. dollars. They purchased the business back in 2005 for $84 billion. But wow, that is a pretty, uh, that's a pretty good hit. While the company blamed the write-down primarily on a strengthening U.S. dollar, it said the non-cash impairment charge was also due to increased competition and a shrinking market for razors as men shave less frequently. Interesting. Conservative critics, the article says, were quick to connect the right down to the brand's recent push into progressive social issues, which rival Schick has pointedly mocked with a series of lighthearted ads taglined, The Man I Am. Isn't it interesting, though, that uh, advertising's increasingly becoming the battleground of the culture wars with brands like Target and Nike and Starbucks copping backlash and praise for taking sides in divisive social and political issues like race, gender and sexuality? 
But by alienating roughly roughly 50% of potential customers, a lot of brands end up taking a hit to their bottom line, meaning get woke, go broke. And Gillette decided, yeah, we can step into that. I'm sure we can make this work. Back in January, with their online firestorm and boycott threats that followed their ad about the Me Too movement, challenging men to shave their toxic masculinity. The ad, which depicted various scenes of men bullying and catcalling women, asked, is this the best a man can get? Is it? Now, the We Believe ad was labeled by some in the media as an attack on men, but others praised the ad for, quote, starting the conversation. Why does that sound so Orwellian? In May, Gillette followed up with an ad teaching his, uh, with a father teaching his transgender son how to shave for the first time. And while the first shave ad was generally well-received, it was also seen as Gillette doubling down on social issues. In response one Facebook to one Facebook comment, the company said, We believe brands, brands rather play a role in influ- influencing culture, and we have a responsibility to use their voice for good. Well, well, I hope it was worth the $8 billion hit. I don't know if all of it can be traced to it, but I'll tell you what. There aren't a lot of decisions I make based on, well, you know, does this brand support gun control or not? You know, Levi's, I know, they're, they're, pretty, they're pretty all in for gun control. And I'm not sure if I would, you know, go ahead and boycott them because, you know, the only reason I don't wear Levi's these days mainly is because they just don't fit. I got old man butt, so I can't fill out my 501s like I once did. So... I don't worry about Gillette razors either because uh, it's not so much a matter of what? They're supporting social justice issues? Well, then I'll never use their product. Not by the hair of my chinny chin chin. But I've just, I've had a beard for a long enough time, uh, you know. I don't really need (laughs) expensive razor blades. Whatever the Dollar Shave Club sends me is more than enough to keep the edges trimmed up. I just do find it fascinating, though, that, uh, well, maybe maybe they're seeing the light and shifting towards something a little more positive. I have no problem with the whole local heroes approach. I think that's pretty cool. But I guess it's just kind of a warning towards anybody. If you're going to if you're going to make the foray into social justice issues. Congratulations. You have successfully found one of the great flashpoints and dividing points among American society. Don't be too surprised if you end up paying a price for being so woke. Welcome back to Loving Liberty, 801-331-8113. A big shout-out to our friends listening to us on FM 100.3 in St. George. My old stomping grounds. So I'm going to share with you a a great article here from Lawrence W. Reed. That's uh, Larry Reed to his friends. He is the host of the Reed Hour. And it's called Advice for Presidential Candidates from Bastiat. Now, when I when I meet somebody and I do meet a number of people along their life's journey who, for one reason or another, suddenly get serious about, I want to know what I stand for. And for people who are like, it's important for me to understand uh, why my freedom matters, how I can best stand for it, what good government is. I always 
refer them to Frederick Bastiat. He just has such a beautiful, succinct way of of spelling out why the law exists, why government exists, what are the proper boundaries, and what are the improper uses of government. But it's rare to encounter people who are familiar with him. I mean, after all, the guy was an economist, lived back in the early 1800s, died fairly young, too, actually. But listen to what Lawrence Reed has to say. He says, whether conjured up by something I ate before bedtime or by the cheesy horror flick I watched a few nights before or by something else, I just don't know. But I tossed and turned through one of the most vivid dreams last weekend that I've ever experienced. He said, I was in a classroom with all the 2020 presidential candidates, including the president occupant of the White House. My job was to introduce the guest speaker, none other than the late, great French economist and statesman Frederick Bastiat, author of The Law and one of his real heroes. He says it should have been a night of ecstasy. Every person vying for president schooled by the greatest storyteller the philosophy of liberty has ever produced. In real life, he says, I'd almost give my firstborn to see Kamala Harris, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Donald Trump, and the others enrolled in a Bastiat for Beginners course. But he says, alas, it was a nightmare. I never spoke a word after the introduction. I could only observe as the master calmly instructed. Maddeningly, nothing he said seemed to sink in. The students wouldn't even take notes. I remember sensing immense frustration. Now, he says, only two good things came out of this ordeal. I woke up before any of them could get elected. (laughs) And he says, and I got the idea for this article. Why not gather a few of Bastiat's very best lines in one place, the ones I would most want a presidential candidate to seriously think about? Well, he says, here they are. Imagine the difference it could make if even one of the candidates allowed the wisdom of only one or two of these snippets to truly sink in. Never again would they see the nanny state in the same way they did before. Here's the first one, quote, the state is the great fiction through which everyone endeavors to live at the expense of everyone else. Number two, between a good and bad economist, this constitutes the whole difference. The one takes account only of the visible effect. The other takes account of both the effects which are seen and those which it is necessary to foresee. Now, this difference is enormous for it almost always happens that when the immediate consequence is favorable, the ultimate consequences are fatal and the converse. Hence, it follows that the bad economist pursues a small present good, which will be followed by a great evil to come, while the true economist pursues a great good to come at the risk of a small present evil. Starting to see why lovers of freedom are such fans of Bastiat. Number three, quote, The socialists declare that the state owes subsistence, well-being, and education to all its citizens that it should be generous, charitable, involved in everything, devoted to everybody, that it should intervene directly to relieve all suffering, satisfy and anticipate all wants, furnish capital to all enterprises, enlightenment to all minds, balm for all wounds, asylums for for all the unfortunate. Who would not like to see all these benefits flow forth upon the world from the law as from an inexhaustible source? But is it possible... Whence does the state draw those resources that it is urged to dispense by way of benefits to individuals? Is it not from the individuals themselves? How then can these resources be increased by passing through the hands of a parasitic and voracious intermediary? 
I'm sorry, but I'm just kind of basking in this because <laughs> this is so dead on. These truths are so succinct. Number four, it's impossible to introduce into society a greater change and a greater evil than this. The conversion of the law into an instrument of plunder. Number five, when plunder becomes a way of life for a group of men in a society, over the course of time, they create for themselves a legal system that authorizes it and a moral code that glorifies it. Number six, socialism, like the ancient ideas from which it springs, confuses the distinction between government and society. As a result of this, every time we object to a thing being done by government, the socialists conclude that we object to its being done at all. We disapprove of state education. Then the socialists say that we are opposed to any education. We, we object to a state religion. Then the socialists say that we want no religion at all. We object to a state-enforced equality. Then they say that we are against equality. And so on and so on. It is as if the socialists were to accuse us of not wanting persons to eat because we do not want the state to raise grain. Number seven, if the natural tendencies of mankind are so bad that it is not safe to permit people to be free, how is it that the tendencies of these organizers are always good? Do not the legislators and their appointed agents also belong to the human race? Or do they believe that they themselves are made of a finer clay than the rest of mankind? Number eight, is it not true that the function of law is to regulate our consciences, our ideas, our wills, our educations, our opinions, our work, our trade, our talents, or our pleasures? The function of law is to protect the free exercise of these rights and to prevent any person from interfering with the free exercise of these same rights by any other person. The existence of persons and property preceded the existence of the legislator, and his function is only to guarantee their safety. Number nine, leave people alone. God has given organs to this frail creature. Let them develop and grow strong by exercise, use, experience, and liberty. Number 10, misguided public opinion honors what is despicable and despises what is honorable, punishes virtue and rewards vice, encourages what is harmful and discourages what is useful, applauds falsehood and smothers truth under indifference or insult. The nation turns its back on progress and can only be restored by the terrible lessons of catastrophe. Number 11, the real cost of the state is the prosperity we do not see, the jobs that don't exist, the technologies to which we do not have access, the businesses that do not come into existence, and the bright future that is stolen from us. The state has looted us just as surely as a robber who enters our home at night and steals all that we love. Number 12, everyone wants to live at the expense of the state. They forget that the state wants to live at the expense of everyone. Number 13, you who think you are so great, you who judge humanity to be so small, you who wish to reform everything, why don't you reform yourselves? That task would be sufficient enough. All right, last one here, number 14. The mission of the law is not to oppress persons and plunder them of their property, even though the law may be acting in a philanthropic spirit. Its purpose is to protect persons and property. If you exceed this proper limit, if you attempt to make the law religious, fraternal, equalizing, philanthropic, industrial, or artistic, 
You will then be lost in an uncharted territory, in vagueness and uncertainty, in a forced utopia, or even worse, in a multitude of utopias, each striving to seize the law and impose it on you. So again, thanks to Larry Reed for this marvelous essay, complete with about 14 of the greatest quotes from Frederick Bastiat. If you don't have a copy of the, of the law, get your hands on it. You don't even have to go buy a copy if you don't want. You can actually Google it and read the entire text right there on your computer. It's the beginning of a liberty mindset. I can't think of anybody who has seriously read this essay that didn't come away with a greater appreciation for what government should and should not be doing. We'll take a quick break and we'll be back after this. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Radio News. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I will have a link to uh, Larry Reed's uh, essay about uh, these great quotes from Frederick Bastiat. Man, if only politicians uh, really were were serious about this kind of stuff, and I'm not trying to be fatalistic in in pointing this out. I think it's pretty self-explanatory and hopefully self-evident. Politics is not about let's do the right thing. No matter what, let's do the right thing. No, it's not. It's more like, let's do the right thing to maintain power or to get more power, whatever it takes. And that's the part that I struggle with. I'm like, man, they could benefit from from just knowing what the limits are instead of arguing over, well, how much should we tax people for this unconstitutional program? We start the discussion with why should this program exist in the first place? For that matter, should we actually be taxing people in the first place? Anyhow, I think I owe another little debt of gratitude to uh, Lawrence W. Reed. He posted an article this morning. This is by Charles C.W. Cook, and it's on National Review. The article's called The Rush to Restrict Gun Rights. And the thing that just jumped out at me, I'm going to jump to this one line in here. When a nation sets up a direct pipeline between its emotions and its laws, it does not keep its liberty for long. There is a truth there that we all need to very clearly apprehend and make sure that we understand. Because right now, we're in some very interesting times. And politicians are poised to make some mistakes in the effort to just do something. we got to do something. we got to do anything. But they're poised to make mistakes that will cost us all dearly in the long run. And here's how Charles C.W. Cook describes it. He says, these are times that try our Constitution. The recent mass shooting in El Paso, Texas, could almost have been contrived in a laboratory as a means to test Americans' commitment to the Bill of Rights. The killer, a young white supremacist man who believed stupidly he was striking a blow against cultural and ethnic replacement, to which I would also add he's striking a blow blow against what he considered uh, what's destroying the environment. He was an eco-fascist. 
believed stupidly that uh, he was he was uh, striking this blow against cultural and ethnic replacement was a poster to the website 8chan, a site that in any other country would likely have been prosecuted and shut down by now. To carry out his attack, he used an AK-47 type semi-automatic rifle that in any other country would not have been available for purchase and would have been difficult to come by secondhand or even to steal. Yeah, unless he knows a thing or two about the black market, right? Most of these uh, most of these criteria they say would have would have had this uh, manifesto that he left re- removed from circulation by the chief censor of whatever country moments after its release. And for the sort of people who say is an insult, America is the only country in the world in which this could happen. The incident and its aftermath served as indictments not only of the shooter and his abhorrent, villainous ideology, but also of the United States as a whole. Now, here Charles C.W. Cook says, these people are wrong, though. They were wrong before this abomination. They are wrong after it. Now, as ever, the quality of a free society is measured by how that society protects its liberties when they've been abused, not by how well it celebrates them when they are under no strain. Okay, that's a good point. What happened in El Paso was an unconscionable disgrace, and when we finished reflecting upon it, we should exert great effort into considering how we might prevent its like from happening again. But, he warns, if we turn our key against our key strengths in the process, we will achieve a pyrrhic vis- victory at best, and at worst end up dismantling our inheritance for a mess of pottage. Perhaps the two most dangerous words in all of politics are do something. They are also, alas, among the most common. Less than a day had passed before Senator Charles Schumer demanded that Senator Mitch McConnell convene an emergency session of the Senate in order to pass the House of Representatives' universal background check bill. And as if on cue, a host of his Democratic colleagues had joined him in implying that failure to comply would leave the dissenters with blood on their hands. One can only ask, why? The shooter in El Paso did not obtain his firearm without a background check. On the contrary, he passed such a check, as the perpetrators of mass attacks almost invariably do. Why exactly would we seek to ensure that a crime such as this does not happen again by passing a law that does not so much as intersect with it? And why, for that matter, would we rush to do anything else besides? Last year, the Rand Corporation, hardly a font of unbridled Patrick Henry-esque libertarianism, conducted a survey of the relevant academic research and failed to find a single gun control policy that has been proven to reduce mass shootings in America. We found no qualifying studies, its its report concluded bluntly, showing that any of the 13 policies we investigated decreased mass shootings. Now, Charles C.W. Cook says in a free country such as America, one would need to discuss the propriety of taking drastic action, even if that action were guaranteed to work. The Second Amendment and its 44 state level equivalents were passed for good reason and remain relevant to this day. But given that no such evidence obtains, the question for the do something crowd bears a little repeating a little bit louder. Why? What about the odious, radical, horatory language that the perpetrator swam in? Surely that should be restricted, given the circumstances. No, no, no. If it is to come, the solution to the rising tide of white supremacist violence in the United States will not be the product of a sea change in our thinking about individual liberty or an embrace of European-style hate speech legislation. 
but of sustained government action that, while aggressive, assiduously respects the First Amendment's circumscriptions. The temptation to remove the websites on which white supremacists and other worthless types congregate is comprehensible. But under both existing statute and contemporary free speech jurisprudence, such action would be illegal in America unless and until those websites can be shown to have explicitly been designed to facilitate criminal acts. 8chan, while ugly, does not fit that narrow bill, and it should not be made to fit that narrow bill. Yes, the site is a hotbed of bigotry, hatred, and nascent violence. But for the government to conflate the bad choices that its users are making with the intention of its owners would be to set a dangerous precedent that would rebound for years to come. 8chan's status purpose, 8chan's stated purpose, rather, remember, is as a designated free speech zone, not as a tool for racketeers and a directory for hitmen. Its single house rule is do not post, request, or link to any content illegal in the United States of America. Do not create boards with the sole purpose of posting or spreading such content. In consequence, it is undoubtedly protected by both the First Amendment and the Communications Decency Act, the latter of which renders users, not platforms, liable for violations of the law. Were the government to step in and attempt to seize it or to drag 8chan's owners into court, one can only wonder who would be next. A far better course of action is to leave the government to do only what it can do, to infiltrate, surveil, monitor, assess credible risks, and then move if the impetus is there, and to allow the American citizenry to do the rest, simply by choosing with whom they wish to associate. Under the existing structure of the Internet, there is no wholesale way to prevent the 8chans and the storm fronts from setting up websites and from communicating online. And again, there should not be. But there is ample room for America's tech businesses to decline to provide them with tech support, to decline to help set them or to help them scale up or to decline to help protect them. A good analogy here might be with the owner of a printing press. Suppose that a white supremacist writes a Hitler praising pamphlet that he hopes to distribute en masse. And upon realizing his inkjet printers not up to the task, he asks a local printer to make 500,000 copies. Now, the owner of the press would, of course, be within his rights to refuse to provide health, to help, rather. And he should. No, he might say, go home and do it yourself. Were Cloudfare, Amazon Web Services, and other, a few others to take a similar approach, the welcome mat would be pulled from underneath some of the worst actors within our ranks, and all without cramping a single solitary piece of the American order. I think it's actually Cloudflare. Anyway, Whenever the United States faces a crisis or tragedy, it is invariably suggested in the press that the country needs a more streamlined political system that's capable of transmuting the transient whims of the majority into concrete action within a matter of days. And Charles C.W. Cook says this view is a dangerous one, and it ought to be resisted at all costs. For when a nation sets up a direct pipeline between its emotions and its laws, it does not keep its liberty for long. There is much that we can and should do in order to respond to changing circumstances. We must recognize there are certain corners of the Internet that are anything but harmless or ironic. We must accept that, that evil ideologies, such as white supremacy, represent a physical as well as a spiritual problem in America. And we must avoid complacency even as we defend our elementary rights. But defend them we must, even though, especially when our grief points us in another direction. Amen. Beautifully said. 
Hey, thanks for joining us. This is the Loving Liberty radio program and podcast. I'm Brian Hyde. All right, let's share a little article here from Gary Gallas from the Foundation for Economic Education's website, fee.org. I thought this was fun just because I know a lot of parents are kind of getting their minds around it's back-to-school time. And Gary Gallas has a nice take here how back-to-school shopping is like modern politics. The focus here being that the frequent parent-child conflict of back-to-school shopping illustrates why politics expands Americans' disunity. He says his 2019's campaign unpleasantness has accelerated. Oh, my gosh, there's over a year to go. Many Americans have been going through another sometimes unpleasant experience, and that is back-to-school shopping. Seemingly overlooked, however, he says, is the frequent parent-child conflict of back-to-school shopping and how it illustrates why politics expands Americans' disunity. Now, it starts with the understanding that parents and children have different values. Parents and children value back-to-school items differently, and that difference is often large. That's because parents' more practical considerations can be way out of lines with the children's where-will-this-put-me-on-the-social-pecking-order-at-school concerns. And when their valuations differ substantially, requiring them to make decisions jointly can cause serious disagreements. Now, he says there's also a large difference in the relevant costs facing parents and children. A parent footing the back-to-school bill weighs the value they perceive against the item's price because they must pay it. But children do not pay the bill. Given that decision makers will want more of things when the cost of them is lower and less of things when the cost is higher, this is what economists call the law of demand, this too causes disagreements. So Gary Gallus says, in sum, back-to-school shopping often involves strident confrontations due to large gaps between the values parents and children place on the items in question and the very different costs that they must bear to get them, because those decisions must be jointly made. He says that's also why modern politics heightens America's dis- Americans' disunity. Americans' preferences for what they want government to do are very different. And various groups are always lobbying to use the government to expand their to-do lists out of others' pockets. Many desires are also mutually inconsistent. In other words, if I want A and you want not A, we can't both get what we want. This is in areas ranging from taxation and regulation to health care, education, and the environment. Further, he says, different people face differently or vastly different tax and regulatory price tags For what government chooses to do, as when particular property owners are forced to bear virtually the entire cost of preserving an endangered species habitat, making that preservation free to others, or when some pay disproportionate shares of the tax burden, including future taxes, when deficit financing is used or other unfunded liabilities are created by current programs for government expenditures. In fact, electoral conflict is like back-to-school conflict, except that the disagreements are worsened when they concern what the government is to do. The government decides who will be treated as children, including what and how much they'll be given, and who it will force to bear the parents' tab. Every added government freebie expands American discord. Consequently, every proposal promising more handouts benefits politicians by expanding their power to be the distributor of costs and benefits. But this creates more disunity among citizens. 
One common means of reducing back-to-school disagreements also illustrates part of the problem with our current redistributionist state. That is to give children back-to-school budgets for clothing and let them choose what to buy. That forces them to compare the value they see represented by each dollar spent on each item and the value offered by alternatives they could pick instead. And a beneficial byproduct is dramatically reduced conflicts. Such a back-to-school approach to government would increase Americans' freedom to make their own choices with their own resources by reducing government dictation in areas where our preferences and circumstances differ widely. In other words, almost everywhere. Our disunity, he says, which ironically seems inversely proportional with the candidates' claims that they'll be unifiers, would be reduced. Unfortunately, American politics has trended, and not just on Twitter, in the opposite direction with an ever-expanding array of retribution, or redistribution rather, backed by what we recognize as theft when the government is not involved. And Gary Gallus says that is a major reason why we are so divided and why so many electoral promises can only divide us more. I don't know, that's that's an analogy that holds up for me. That actually seems to make a lot of sense. Something to think about as you're trying to uh, work through these uh, back-to-school decisions with your kids. A couple other quick items here in the last few moments of today's program. Um, not sure what to think of this. Federal Energy Program suggests keep the thermostat set at 78 degrees, 82 while you sleep. Now, I get it. This is to save energy, right? Maybe I'm just one of those weird people, but uh, you know what? I can tell the difference between 73 and 74 degrees in my home. I don't know how I can, other than uh, when it's 74 degrees, I'm like, does it just feel kind of stuffy or does it just feel muggy here? But at 73 degrees, it's like, oh no, it's perfect. I know, if I was was in line with the rest of the people, room temperature would be 72 and that's where I'd feel perfect. But 73 is great, 74, I can tell the difference. So bringing the thermostat to 78 degrees or higher... In the summertime, not a big fan of that. But wait, there's even more. Now we're being told that, uh, hey, you know what, what else would be great? Set your temperature to 82 degrees or higher while you're sleeping. Now, for people who hate to sweat in the summer months, keeping your home temperature at 78 degrees during the day and 82 degrees through the night might sound awful. But apparently, according to uh, Energy Star, for every degree you raise the set temperature of your central air, you'll save about 3% on your utility bill. Yeah, I'm not going to buy it. (laughs) It's worth it to be able to sleep soundly. And, And for the record, I sleep soundly when it's colder. Hibernate might actually be a more appropriate depiction of what I do when the temperature is colder. It's one of the reasons I love fall. I'll crack open a window and let that cold air in. And man, it just, it knocks me out. Cold room coupled with a nice warm blanket. Oh yeah, that's the way to go. But I'm not sure this is going to be a real uh, easy sell for people. By the way, the Department of Energy is also stressing uh, keeping the heat coming from your house uh, within your house to a minimum. 
Turn off appliances and lights when they aren't being used. Only wash full loads of laundry or dishes. Take shorter showers or run fans while you do things like shower and cook that can help reduce the heat buildup in your home. Who was it? Uh, Travis Tritt, the country singer. I saw he had posted something about this. What? Keep the temperature at 78 or keep the you know nighttime temperature at, uh, at 82. And he's like, I'm sorry, but I have a geothermal HVAC system at my home. So he says, uh, you folks can all kiss my you know 65-degree behind because <laughs> that's where I'm keeping my temperature. Okay, more power to you there, Travis. That's, uh, that's a good way to go. One final thought. Article here, Seeing is Believing. This is from studyfinds.org. Fake news may lead to false memories, according to a voter, a voter study. Fake news, a term that's been impossible to escape in the U.S. for the past few years, meaning misinformation and fabricated stories, especially those on social media, played a troubling role in the 2016 election, but unfortunately there's every indication that's going to continue into the big election year of 2020. But just how persuasive is fabricated news? Well, here's where it gets scary. According to a joint study conducted by both American and Irish researchers, fake news almost certainly influences voters and can cause many to form false memories based on fabricated news reports they've seen. I guess this is where I will once again just uh, just emphasize that if you really want to see and understand the world around you, you're going to have to be the one to step up and take responsibility. And that means you've got to be willing to do your own homework. You've got to train yourself to think like an expert. And one of the first things you have to do in order to make that happen is find the courage to switch off the media and walk away from it. Or at the very least, if you're going to be accessing media, try to find points of view that actually challenge your own. It's not comfortable. The cognitive dissonance is real. The mental pain you feel is real when you hear a credible description of something that runs counter to what you believe. But it's a healthy thing to do. But it's ultimately your responsibility. I can't think for you. I wouldn't want to presume to think for you. Nobody else should as well. You take ownership of it. You own your own viewpoint. I promise. That will steer you clear of most of the fake news drama. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion. Without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. 